You're listening to the UBC Medicine Learning Network. Before we start today's interview, I would like to acknowledge that we are hosting this podcast on the unceded and traditional territories of the Clay Clay Tene, a part of the Carrier Territory. Welcome. You are listening to Metamorphosis, a podcast where we interview physicians from across BC and Canada with the aim of helping medical students navigate their medical careers. My name is Crystal, and I am a medical student at UBC's Northern Medical Program. On today's episode, we are speaking to Dr. Darren Yakubek. He is a GP anesthetist working in beautiful Smithers, BC, in emergency medicine, surgical care, and complex pain management. I'm really excited to welcome Dr. Jacobeck onto the podcast to hear about his 20 plus years of experience in rural remote medicine and the exciting work he's doing right now with DREAMS. Um, so thank you for joining me today, Dr. Jakovic. First question I'm gonna ask you right off the hop is can you share a bit of your background and why you chose to pursue medicine? Yeah, that's a big question. It, it, it was more that there didn't seem much future with my biology degree at Simon Fraser when I envisioned it, and medicine seemed more interesting. But there wasn't much more to it than that. It seemed like interesting and a challenge. I don't come from a medical family or not a lot of medical background. And please share with me how you basically took the next steps from entering medical school, what did that look like, and entering into family medicine. Well, going to Simon Fraser, it was a bit more of a challenge to get into because there's no medical school there. So you're a bit behind the eight ball. So to get into UBC and in the 90s, they were cutting back on doctors and felt there was way too many of us. So it was challenging. But I got into UBC and at the time you couldn't get uh, loans beyond student loans. So family medicine, I was just in so much debt that I couldn't fathom doing anything but family medicine at nine and a half percent at the time. Yeah, and it just made sense. So I went out to Dalhousie just for adventure or five years of doing family medicine. I, I found I loved sedating people and anesthesia. So I did a year of anesthesia in Ottawa. And from my understanding, the GP anesthetist role allows a lot of different job opportunities and it's untowards itself a very unique specialty, separate even in many ways from family medicine. Can you share with me a little bit about what your typical day looks like as a GP anesthetist? Wow, it's very much evolved over time. And I think that evolution is is significant. It, it used to be when I'd work in Iqaluit, where I spent almost four years, I would do family medicine clinic, intermingled with some days would be anesthesia. And now most of my days are anesthesia. And then trickled with on-call at night and trickled with emergency room shifts. And when I did my anesthesia training, I stopped delivering babies, which was a bit of a relief for me because it was never my passion. But a lot of call-ins. So where I am right now, compared to where I was, a lot of call-ins to the emergency room. I'd say maybe 30% of the anesthetics I do are in the emergency room. So call-ins in the evenings, call-ins on the weekends. I'm on call right now. Did a cardio version after the slate yesterday and emerge or sedated somebody and you get to look at the ECGs with the GP. But at least once a week, it seems there's a major sepsis or trauma or overdose where you're intubating somebody and putting in lines and tubes and art lines and central lines. And it depends once a 
one or two cesarean sections a week, one or two epidurals a week, middle of the night, putting people on BiPAP or CPAP since there's no respiratory technician and, and there's one or two nurses who get it and often they aren't on call. So be it neonates or be it elderly or can, you're the only one that knows how to use the BiPAP or even the settings on the ventilator. So I'm called in for that once or twice a week. Uh, pediatric and all recesses were kind of the de facto recess on call, be it a trauma, a car accident. So the eMERGE doc will take first and then your kind of backup or lines and tubes. So that's, I'm going to say once every two weeks, there's a trauma. I'm just guessing. It's only once a month. I, I do the pain clinic with the physiotherapist in the neighboring town of Houston. And then some of those people, he texts me, can you see this person and do this injection? Can you see this person? And I'll see them after my slate at two or three o'clock. And then sprinkled in consults for the upcoming regions. And there's such a shortage of resources. I will do anesthesia consults for, at the end of my day, I did two yesterday, somebody who needs knee surgery, but lives in Smithers. I did an anesthesia consult that'll go to the electronic records. In the past week, I think I've done four lumbar punctures. I've drained four chests in the past two weeks, which is, and that goes in ebbs and flows. And I was asked to tap one belly just because there's the GPs are so busy. There's no routine surgeon. It's not my specialty, but you kind of tend to be known as the guy that puts needles in things and people are overwhelmed and the systems are overwhelmed and the pain clinics are overwhelmed. So I'm doing more and more procedure based things at the end of my day. So it's often a 7am to 6pm with one or two call-ins at night. So it's a bit of a convoluted answer there. No, really in this episode, we want to talk about why rural remote is so unique. And I think you've embodied that so well. It's such a mixed bag. Just taking a step back, you mentioned that you pursued your GP anesthetist because you enjoyed sedating people. I'm a previous ICU nurse. I also enjoy sedating people. Uh, was there a specific spark or impetus or was the procedures that are a huge part of being a GP anesthetist also draw you in? Oh, for sure. I, I liked internal medicine and I liked anesthesia. And to say sedating people isn't entirely correct. I, I'd say I reached a point where you realize so often you can't truly help people and people are sabotaging themselves. So what really makes a difference? This is my bias, either psychological, in brackets, spiritual, like social well-being changes and if somebody can change their way of being, and oftentimes you can't help that, but that's, you can see big changes there. Or if somebody needs surgery and you need a surgeon and an anesthetist, and I wasn't particularly sold on surgery, medicine was more satisfying because I felt like I was actually solving a problem, if that makes any sense. Anybody who's been in the system a while realizes, what am I doing at the end of a clinic day, at the end of an emerge shift? It's like, did I actually make a difference? And it's nice to feel that you did and... You can't always, but I feel like I can be part of something that makes a difference. I think that's lovely. And that's very true. Getting a little bit of the rural remote component of your story. From my understanding, you grew up in Vancouver, correct? Born in Burnaby, raised in Port Moody. Yes. You're working in one of the most remote communities in Canada right now, and you've worked in many along the way. Tell me about what drew you to work in that, those very extreme environments. It's funny how everything's relative. I don't consider this particularly remote, but I have worked in a lot of far more remote communities. And yes, we are both rural and remote here in Smithers, where I'm talking to you. I think my first locum was in Iqaluit in Nunavut. 
and then going once a week, you do site visits up to, I was the Iglulik doctor for two years and Arctic Bay for six months and Pangerton. For, like being in these outer communities where you see how much a nurse practitioner can do and value teamwork and being the consultant on the more interesting stuff when the nurses see the bread and butter stuff was just addicting. And I thought, wow, I don't really want to see ears and throats. I want to see the interesting ears and throats because the job's just way more interesting. And I mean, as a side note, I think we totally underutilize nurse practitioners and physician assistants and nurses in our system. And once you get a taste of just doing the interesting stuff, it's addicting. Wow, this is fun. I can see there's pus draining out of this ear. Okay, that's an interesting ear. Okay, there's this is actually an abscess in the neck. Like this is way more interesting than than the sore throat. And and then when every problem is like that, my, my day's just more interesting. So I, I found the job satisfaction really good. And I'm not a very good businessman. I like to t- I like to chat with people. So the fee for service system, which was predominant in most city environments, urban environments. I like psychology. I like sociology. Um, I like getting to the root of the problem, more internal medicine style. It, it was financially difficult for me to see myself in a fee for service systems. And when I did locums, I would barely make ends meet and frustrate the staff. And I thought, you know, maybe this, the more urban environment of fee for service was not my cup of tea. And then as luck would have it, I just, I met uh, a partner who liked rural environments and remote environments that I had a partner that liked being rurally helped the situation. So I stumbled into it more than anything. And and I think maybe perhaps not having roots in the city or strong roots or a, a family who lived there forever with amenities or things to let me enjoy Vancouver. We, there wasn't much to, to keep me there. And it's a very expensive city. I think that's completely understandable. And something that this kind of your answer made me think of, I've been talking to a lot of rural remote physicians for this podcast. And I've noticed that a lot of you guys travel and locum, trek out many communities before you finally land in a home. Can you talk about what your experience was of visiting different communities as a new physician? And do you recommend that to other people who are starting out new in family practice? Uh, I, I absolutely do. But I'm, of course, I'm biased. So there's a, it's a blessing and a curse to not have strong family supports where you come from. The blessing is that you have the freedom to to move all these places and see all these places. The curse is well, you're you don't have a support, you don't have supports in one place to go back to. So you know, my part of the reason I moved around is because I could, and there wasn't anything to pull me back. But it's wonderful to get perspectives and to know both medically and from a business perspective, and unfortunately you have to pay the bills and most people are in debt to know what, how do you not be taken advantage of and what was, you know, I went to Rankin Inlet and was told I was filling in for one of three doctors and I got there and I was the only doctor and I was only, I wasn't paid for three doctors, I was paid for one doctor and it's okay, won't get fooled again. How do you not be taken advantage of moving around you get to see how different people have stuck up for themselves and i think it's very poignant at this time in where staffing is a concern to have different perspectives and know how people have carved out a life that has some semblance of balance for lack of a better word uh, medically socially financially uh, call schedules and moving around did help me get that perspective but if maybe, you know, it is very unique to me and I'm, I'm willing to own that. You have children having parental support, oh my goodness, or supportive grandparents, or you can't put a price on that. We didn't have that. So we had to kind of engage in this community. And I literally, 
I went through a few nannies because realized that's what I need since we didn't have family supports. But if you have those family supports and you want children, a really good argument would be made to just, my goodness, take advantage of that because that will help your life. So the answer is complicated. Definitely is. But I think it's really cool that you tried a lot of different communities before. Do you think because you tried so many different communities that it kept you in this one place for a long period of time? Oh, absolutely. Ultimately, on, on many levels, we're government employees. It's, it's, it's easy to resent a system that gives you autonomy but restricts that autonomy at the same time. And how do you manage that for your own good? And I, I, I personally needed the other perspectives to help set up boundaries and to help carve out a practice that was good for me and what my passions are. And seeing other models that didn't fit what I wanted to do was part of that process. And I suspect it can be for many. Like I wasn't around for the rotating internship thing, but we, we miss that. You go out as an intern after one year of training, but you have support. That system where you used to go out as an intern, do family medicine in the field, and you learn so much and then go back and find out you like urology. And we've lost so much in that system where, I mean, what, what, what does any of us really know what we want to do? Since they took away the rotating internship system, and now they're talking about a third year in family medicine, which to me is terrifying and horrifying from from a sorting out your life perspective. What if you really want to be a general surgeon? What if you find out after five years and now you've put three years in family medicine? And no judgment. It's moving around is one of those ways that you can find out what your passion really is. And maybe it's addictions and maybe it's surgery or maybe it's goodness knows whatever many aspects of family medicine, which is the fun part of family medicine. No, I think you brought up a lot of really great points. Something that I've wanted to ask you since we started to sit down for this interview, because I think the GP and anesthetist role is fascinating. And I worked, like I mentioned, as a nurse before coming to medical school. And I was always shocked by how much call and how much hard work the GP and anesthetist put in. Because as you mentioned in your day-to-day activities, they're the heart of every acute patient that walks into a rural and remote. Can you tell me a little bit more about what call looks like for you? What's the average amount of time you do call? How busy is it? So in short, I'm one in three. And many rural communities, you're between one and two and one and four call. There's been a few studies, indirect studies and recommendation that says only over the long term is one in four sustainable. So 24 hours on and then three days off. And it's often not been that way for me. I've often been one in three. And when I first got here, we did two weeks on, four weeks off for anesthesia call. And we'd intermingle emergency room shifts. And it's become so busy in this little town that I can no longer do emergency medicine and anesthesia at the same time. I feel and justify that I can do it safely because the calls are so frequent. So we, we, me and my partners have been between three days on. Often we've, our new schedule is we do a week on and two weeks off. Here and over the summer, we do two weeks on four weeks off and try and get locums to fill that. And then one of us will go away and we'll do, we'll, we'll mix it up, but it's not a traditional, we, we take chunks of time because we all find we need time off and the burden of call on some inner level is just draining and we're called in enough that you need some time off. Did that answer your question? I can't remember. It did, yeah. Would you say in the average night then you're called in one to two times, I think you mentioned before, does that seem about right? <sighs> I'd, I'd say if I average it out, I'm called in twice per 24 hours, but sometimes it's 12 times that I've slept the last three nights from like 
10 p.m. onwards, which I feel like I'm going to jinx it because it's it's very rare that that happens. You might go a week and not be called in, which is really unlikely, but you might it might happen. But I think with three weeks ago, there was four nights that I didn't get home. Like it was it was kind of the worst in two years. But it, out of a week, there was I slept on the operating room couch intermittently. One was a baby that we couldn't figure out the ventilator needed intermittent CPAP. The other was a child who was an asthmatic who was on the edge of needing intubation, like tripoding, and I, I couldn't justify going far. There's no on-call room, and that's for the eMERGE doc, so there's no really on-call room, so the operating room couch is pretty comfy. The thought of going home, still cold out, my truck's cold, I only live 10 minutes away, but to be called right back, it's not worth it. And then you have to go to, I mean, the operating room starts at 7, so we're, the nurses are in, we're going to start our day of operations. So you try and keep the operating room day going and not interrupt your visiting surgeon who's come from a distant town to do their slate for people who are waiting surgery. And so sometimes you do it a little too sleep deprived and it's not all good, but it's good that you've got your thousands of hours in. So things are pretty automatic. Absolutely. You know, I think a lot of people often say, you know, uh, I chose a specialty because I get a call in the middle of the night, I know it's something worth going for, something that I feel it's worth waking up for and going at 3 a.m. Do you feel like all the calls you get, even though they're so different, they're like always an emergency, they're always important, they're always something you need to go for? In a word, yes. And if you look at the big picture of life, no. And I've got this mantra of, I will get up for somebody who's drunk and belligerent at 3 a.m. and give them an an, an anesthetic to put their shoulder back in. I'd better make bloody sure when my 16-year-old son wants to talk to me at 11 p.m., I give him that same amount of time and energy to my family that I do to my community and make sure family doesn't take a second or back seat to my community duties. Like Sometimes I feel like I've made a difference just because my colleague needed support. And you can put it in a shoulder without anesthetic and you often do and you don't always need anesthesia but we work as a one doc emerge so a lot of times just the camaraderie of working with that emerge doc and them not being alone is is as much the reward as what i actually did with the patient we were so under-resourced comparatively speaking in the north that any bit of help in any difficult situation is is helpful so sometimes the help is social and collegial as opposed to medically, but there's just no nurses, there's no RTs, there's no pediatrician, there's no internal medicine, there's no social worker, there's there's no one else to call. So just two doctors makes a difference. I love that. That's really nice. And then you're 21 years into being a GP anesthetist. How hard is the call as you progress through your career? Has it changed and how difficult it is? Is it easier? A couple answers to that. It's certainly easier. I can sleep anywhere, anytime. I don't have anxiety about being on call, which has changed from my early career. But there's this cumulative PTSD, for to pick an awkward word, of, of cumulative traumas that uh, I, I tell everybody because I think I'm not ashamed, I'm proud of it, that I, I see my therapist every two weeks, whether I like to or not. But I've realized I carry this luggage of some of the horrific things I've seen. And there's nothing, I mean, dying children is is one of them. You can't, you don't just get over that. Like it's 
all traumas, you, you need to process them. So I think there's the accumulative, if you're an ambulance, if you work on the ambulance, if you work with the RCMP, if you work in the emergency room, I was told when I first in medical school that emergency room physicians have a maximum 15 year career. And it, it may or may not be true, but it stuck with me as true at the time. And there's some degree of truth to that, that like, can't I just upstream? Can I do wellness work? Because not only the trauma, but the feeling that I want to make people well, I'm really tired of people sabotaging themselves and me trying to put them back together and throw them back out there to sabotage themselves again. I'm, that sounds very cynical, but it tends to be the way you start to view the world after only dealing with traumas, which is part of the reason I like obstetrics. I love doing obstetric epidurals. It's like, oh, okay, maybe something good will happen. A, ba- a thankful mom, a baby might come out of this and it just feels satisfying. So it's different, but I definitely feel the burden of there needs to be a day where I'm not on call. I know your training was a while ago, but did you feel when you came out from your one year of, of anesthesia that that was enough training to be in that setting, um, to be on your own in a rural and remote place? And if not, how did you kind of get that additional knowledge and skill set? I feel like it did. And a lot of the focus of a year of GP anesthesia training is telling you what not to do. Don't put a spinal in somebody with aortic stenosis. Okay, don't do this, beware of this, beware of this, don't put so knowing when to say no is a huge focus on the training. So with that backdrop, it's helpful. And I think it was particularly helpful with me doing emergency medicine for five years before that. One of my, I don't know if it's a right thing to say, a concern of people going right into anesthesia without doing some family medicine, some emergency medicine, you don't see the anaphylaxis, you don't see, which is a huge one, you don't see the bad asthmatics, you don't see some of these things that you see with experience. But in a word, yeah, I think the training is adequate. And ideally not being in a place where you're alone, because it's terrifying, like spend the first year or two or three of practice where you're with somebody else, ideally, or you have mentors or somebody who's a bit older than you, because we're all still learning. How's that for an answer? No, that's great. (laughs) And obviously, you love to learn. I I know that you've spent a lot of time building your practice in different and unique ways that some GP anesthetists don't. Like you have a pain clinic, for example. Can you tell me about like what additional learning you've done as you've progressed throughout your career and how that kind of reflects in practice? Other than GP anesthesia updates, which there's there's one at St. Paul's once a year, one in Banff once a year, doing locums, talking to colleagues, going to higher acuity. I just did a locum in Duncan for four days, did a bit of higher acuity stuff, did a locum in Terrace. Getting exposure to other places, other things, other systems, you learn really quickly. And well, you still get paid because you're giving a service, they appreciate you, but you can talk to the person next door. So that's the anesthesia, but it's quite burdensome. I think increasingly, I think our system needs to change. I'm passionate about mental health and its crossover to pain and my personal journeys of personal discovery have helped with that. So it helps my life and my practice. The more I know myself, the more I can relate to people. When you don't see the whole picture and when you work with people in the front lines and do a bit of family medicine or you're in the field that you end up doing family medicine, you can see the whole picture, the biopsychosocial picture. Understanding the psychological and social aspects has been a part of my training, both personally going to retreats, knowing who I am. Yeah, taking the psychological and pain aspects and talking to other pain. I liaise with a 
different pain clinics, talk to pain clinics, what procedures are they doing? What solutions are they doing? I went to an international pain symposium in Toronto. I think I was probably the only family doctor there. What works, what doesn't? I did Botox training. So picking up training techniques wherever you can, talking to people in different fields, I'll, I'll go say, okay, I'm going to this town. Can I join your clinic for two days? And update and then come home and I can use some of those skills or give some context to come back home but it's increasingly difficult to stay up to date in everything. And you see why people would just want to do one field. And I do struggle with, we're not valued um, by the governments or financially valued for the number of hats that we fill or the number of on-call schedules that we fill. Let's talk about that more because I think for me, and correct me if this is not the situation for you, but I feel like the more learning and the more engagement you do with your career, it keeps you passionate about it. It stops you from burning out from it, even if you do end up wearing a few different hats. But like you mentioned, there isn't the compensation model in place to cover all a bunch of different hats. What's a good way to keep fresh, keep engaged in your profession, but not take on so much that you're not compensated? <laughs> I don't know if I can answer that question. That's okay. You don't have to. It's difficult. I, I'd say look at the place you're going and you should be paid for what you're doing. But you should be given time off, if not some sort of compensation, some sort of recognition that you need time off to do updates in obstetrics or updates in anesthesia or updates in emergency medicine. And you can't be expected to call every weekend. But I, I do like my kind of extreme example of working in a Calvit where I'm delivering babies, giving anesthetics, doing clinics and working emergency room shifts. And there was a shortage of anesthesia for a week when I went away and they brought up a specialist anesthetist, paid them twice as much as I do to sit there most of the time, not cover emergency medicine, not deliver babies, not do clinic. And I don't resent them. I don't resent their training. Pay them, but value me as well. And there's something soul degrading about not being valued, especially when you're on call. For example, when I'm on, I'm on call for anesthesia right now, if I picked up an emergency room shift, I would be paid less than the other emergency room doc because they won't value that I'm on call as well for that. Say, no, 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 you're only on call for one thing. Well, actually, I'm on call for two things right now. And you're just not acknowledging that. There should be some recognition, especially on call or for the skills that you have and know that you're valued. You've put your time in and you should be valued for those skills. And unfortunately or fortunately, we're all government employees in Canada. So the powers that be may or may not value you for what you have. And you sometimes need to fight to say, I'm giving a, I'm giving a service here. This is worth something. I, this is kind of related but just a side note I've always kind of wondered like because you're the plus one anesthetist and there's the, obviously the five-year program that some people do at larger urban centers do you feel like there's any you know st stigma or any second tier system in place like do you feel treated differently than those anesthetists that have the five-year training or do you feel equal in all circumstances I think it's evolving it's very much evolving in the anesthesia world. I remember one of my colleagues in when I graduated in 96 was one of the first eMERGE docs to be a family medicine and eMERGE to be taken on. He was taken on in Victoria, and he was a really smart guy. But that family doctors didn't used to work in big city eMERGEs, and he was one of the first to do it. And it's, oh, if you're seen as a family doc with an EM, you're seen as pretty darn valuable now. So it's evolved that way in anesthesia. So it's not that there's a resentment or a negativity. I think the reverse. We're increasingly seen for the value that we are and can give. 
and with due respect to the anesthesia colleagues in BC, they've largely paid us on par with them. There's a few things. The consult fee is different. They've they've recognized that we have value and we're giving a service. Yeah, it's evolving for the better, I'd say. Good. Would you say there's any difference in the job descriptions, though? Like if you were to pick up today and move to Vancouver, would your scope be limited at all from compared to Smithers or would it be about the same? No, I couldn't work in Vancouver. Not completely evolved. <laughs> it, yeah, it's not completely evolved. It's it's evolving to the point where, you know, working in Duncan, it's like half specialist, half not specialist anesthetist. We're not trained in the vascular equipment there's many ways that we're not trained to the extent of the FRCPs, and it, and it shows up more poignantly in the cities with higher specialists, basically cardiac surgery, vascular surgery, more so AAAs, aortic aneurysms. We can't cover the same call, so there's some very legitimate reasons. I'm not used to working in the neurosurgery room. I'm not used to So there's some very real on-call reasons, but there's no reason, say, there's a shortage of GPs doing obstetric epidurals in Surrey that I couldn't, I mean, I've put in thousands of obstetric epidurals. I can, I could help cover in Surrey in which there's been little openings here. And like, there's a lot of openings where, you know what, you don't need to meet me to do vascular surgery call necessarily in Vancouver, but there's a number of places where I could be employed in Vancouver, but yet they, that opportunity doesn't exist. It's, it's slowly growing and people are realizing just like nurse anesthetists or nurse practitioners, GPs with extra skills and anesthesia are valuable and can fit a lot of niche places. Coming back to the education piece, you know, I mentioned that for me is a huge part of not burning out of, of healthcare positions that I've held in the past. What for you is the number one thing that prevents you from burning out and not loving your job anymore? Because clearly you've had a very successful long career. Time off and following my passion. You literally need to stop. You literally need the time off to develop your own passions, whether it's passions within medicine or passions without outside of medicine. And if you have a family to spend time with that family, or you will resent yourself, or I love music. If I don't, I'm not in my music lessons. I love working with dreams as a part-time practice. It's a unusual passion, but I love that. But if I don't spend time doing that, uh, I will resent my job. Not committing to a full-time job full bore all the time because there's always more work. So I tell most people, commit part-time, and you can pick up that extra work, but don't take on the burden of everything. That's what's kept me going and continues to keep me going. Tell me about the dream work, because I think that's extremely interesting and important work. I love that you said that. I could talk for hours on this, but if I give you a framework that everyone's living an outer journey and everyone's living an inner journey... What helps you open up to your passions and emotions? And for some people, it's organized religion. For some people, it's yoga. For some people, it's meditation. For some people, whatever your modality can be to open you up to your passions and inner journeys. I find dreams a particularly powerful way of opening up to your intuitions and knowing what you should be doing in any given moment. And I've summarized a quote to say, the world is filled with people telling you what to do. But there's something particularly powerful about you telling yourself what to do. Dreams always have a message, and it's often in your blind spot. And I've found working with them as a modality, they call me out constantly when I'm not living to my fullest potential. So I do it for myself. I have a, a DreamWork practitioner that's in the state of in the state of Maine. I actually had a session this morning. Every two to three weeks, I do a session, send in my dreams. So it's become this way that I stay grounded in myself and my passions. 
and uh, I use it in the emergency room. I use it in my pain clinic. I use it with my patients as well as doing it personally. And it's, it feels very spiritual as well. And just to make sure I understand it correctly, you have your dreams, you record them some way, and then you bring them to a practitioner where you co-analyze them for ideas, underlying themes, messages. Yes, exactly. So I sent them literally through my Gmail account. I write them in my notes of my phone when I get up in the middle of the night and get three or four dreams together, little little piles, and send them to my therapist through Gmail, and the therapist mirrors them back to me. And sometimes just the act of hearing them read back to me I get the epiphany. I'll give you an example. I'm running a pattern. It's like a football game. And I choose a completely different pattern. But it comes with chest tightness. And that's the end of the dream. We're short on emerged. And I feel like I could cover those emergency room shifts. But in a way, we need to revamp our whole system here. And it's very poignant for me right now. Because May long weekend, we've got no one to cover. And all the doctors saying, I, I just can't do anymore. To let a system die, do I let down my colleagues? But all changes come with discomfort. So that's kind of today's epiphany. Can I be with that discomfort? And you never know where it's going. See, it's like the Rolling Stones song. You don't get what you want. You get what you need in the dream. And it's often a, a difficult feeling or so maybe it's an uplifting feeling. Maybe you're walking around depressed and you need to be uplifted or that there's often a, an emotional message. And I, I can intuitively know what to do in my life through that emotional message. No, I love that. And you mentioned you have a little bit of report with the DreamWorks with patients. How do you incorporate that into your practice? Does it come up organically? Do you have a set place and time that you do that with patients? It's through the pain clinic and through the emergency room. And randomly, I've got a bit of a reputation for a guy that works with dreams here. So people will randomly bring it up and I'll, I'll say, is it okay if I ask a dream? So just with permission, I like to say, I don't interpret but I've learned to help facilitate. I really want you to get the epiphany. But people will just ask in the hallway. People will ask in Safeway. Or sometimes when I just hit a dead end, I had somebody, just as an example, 3 a.m., busy emergency room, flank pain, young woman. She was at a neighboring hospital and had gotten some narcotics. And it's like, oh my goodness, you know, this could be an ectopic. This could be pyro. This could be, do we CT scan? But they had a CT scan last week. And I, I just like, and then I hear another ambulance rolling in and I just, just almost like a non-sequitur says, I'm a guy that works with dreams. Sometimes it shows where the underlying pain is. Can I work? And it's amazing how many times people just say yes. It, it astounds me. And she says yes. And she, she asks her boyfriend to step out. She closes the door and she tells me a dream of separation from a father. And I says, oh, what's your relationship with your father? And she opens up to this just horrific uh, abuse story, unrelated it opened up a door that I had no idea it was going to open. And she actually said, should I see a therapist? I'm like, oh my God, this is like too good to be true because I didn't know what to do with this person at 3 a.m. I don't want to give more narcotics. I'm pretty sure there's nothing wrong. And of course, we'll do the urinalysis and the CBC. She actually said the words, do you think this could be contributing to my pain? And I was like, yes, God, thank you. Because <laughs> like, I didn't know what to do as the eMERGE doc. Like she came to the epiphany herself after telling me this horrific story. Like oftentimes I'll have no idea. And I had another one. Somebody was looking for detox, busy emergency room, more ambulances. This person was left over from the night before. Do you have any dreams? Like I, I know like I'm looking at my watch. What, what can I possibly say to this person? And he gave me this fork in the road dream. And there was this like happy place and this sad place. And he broke into tears just telling me the dream. And I thought, wow. And it's in the person's blind spot and they're kind of stuck in their world and I don't know what to do with them. And it's just this Hail Mary sort of throw it out there. If I was to pick one word, it would be hope. This guy saw that there was two roads and I can tell him there's two roads. He knows there's two roads. He's heard it a million times. But 
And he kind of looks at me like I'm some sort of a guru, but well, dude, it's your dream. Like, I'm not telling you this. And it gave this opening. And honestly, I forgot about this guy. Like I went on to other things and he was, and it got back and he was gone. And here I heard later that he spent some time off of alcohol for a while. And <laughs> it sounds brutal, but he got out of my emergency room. And I think in a functional sort of way after having an epiphany and they feel something different in the moment, they feel hope, they feel they've come up with a different solution for their problem because the world is also ready to tell you what to do with your problems. I think you've converted me to honestly to dream work. <laughs> it, it actually sounds extremely powerful. And I totally understand what you mean. Like our system has a lot of holes and gaps in it in healthcare. And I feel like any tool you can draw on to help increase what you can offer to people is huge. Would you say it's almost like another a tool in your assessment tool belt? Oh, absolutely. It's the biopsychosocial model, but we often don't live it. Pharmaceuticals are, are heavily bio. And I'll say, so, you know, stress affects all parts of your body. You know, what's what's the nutritional stressors in your life? Are you eating blueberries or are you eating corn chips? What are you eating? So what's the, that will affect your pain. Uh, what's your emotional pain? Everything good uh, from the past? Parents that hugged you, loving childhood, all good? And I won't, often won't let them answer. I'll just throw that out there. And what about financial? Have you, are, is your financial stressor? Every stressor is worse. A physical stressor. Are you getting exercise? Are you sitting on the couch? Are you doing your stretches? You, I work with a physio. The physio is giving you stretches. 20% of the people will call themselves out. I'm not doing my stretches. Okay. Well, how about we don't do anything else? I don't give you any needles. I don't do your stretches. And we'll see you next time. But going through the, the biolog biological, the physical, nutritional, social, financial, emotional, and dreams are one tool, as you mentioned, in that toolkit and just unapologetically to put it out there. But in the field, especially working rurally and with a family doctor background, it's so easy to see how much is social because the people feel this hopelessness, with, especially with chronic pain. Their world becomes narrow. Well, okay, sure, I'll try blueberries. Sure, I'll try a therapist. Sure, I'll actually do my physio. Like, they just want to know there's other options. No, I, I, I appreciate that answer fully. We learned last semester that about 70% of Canadians have had some trauma in their life. So I even think, like, that as a part of trauma-focused care would be a huge thing to incorporate for a lot of people. So thank you. We, you kind of touched on it briefly, and I think this is a great time to lean into it. Tell me about how the pain clinic started started with me doing like part of anesthesia training is is pain it's acute and chronic pain and I did like a day or two in a pain clinic in my training but not much like a year it's roughly nine months adults three months pediatrics pain clinics are largely have an anesthesia component sometimes I would argue too much anesthesia component to them it became obvious both from my emergency room family medicine that wow, there's some injections like a suprascapular nerve block can help with a frozen shoulder adhesive capsulitis. Frozen shoulders are horribly, they can be horribly painful, horribly. And if you can just turn down the pain dial from an eight to a five, you'll get this person sleep, you'll get them off morphine. So I've learned just in my training and at conferences, oh, well, this makes a difference. And there, there's trigger point injections has gotten a new level of respect out there. And it, it got to the point where I realized people aren't taking care of themselves, that if you're not physically taking care of yourself, emotionally taking care of yourself, nutritionally, I thought, I, I need to work with somebody who knows physios are amazing. I realized I want everyone to see a physio. I want everyone to be taking care of the physical. I got to the point organizationally where I realized if I link with a physiotherapist, they see 100% of my patients, 100%. 
they have to address the physical. And then we, we have a framework. So we're not just talking about medications. And I unabashedly talk about nutritional, psychological, spiritual, financial, it just blah, it's just in my spiel. And are you addressing the physical? And how much, it's kind of a cliche, especially in, in British Columbia right now, team-based care, team-based. And it's, it's true. It's amazing how me and the physio, I don't want to say gang up on people. It's something about having two professionals stand in front of you and nod their heads and agree on the problem that the person feels, okay, I've been called out here. So it's inspiring. It's fun. It's fun. Medicine became funny. Me and my physio friend, we have a riot in our pain clinic and we see some really positive results and we're not talking about pharmaceuticals. We're not talking about what can't be done. We're talking about what can be done and how do we empower people. And it's just, it's uplifted my practice. But one of the boundary setting things I've had to do is say 100% of the people need to see a physio. Oh, I also have a, a psychedelic assisted therapy with ketamine practice. And I've said 100% of people need to see the psychiatrist. So that way you have to address that there's a psychological psychiatric component. This can't be just for pain. I think you're very humble about it. The fact is, I think this pain clinic is really revolutionary. There's next to no places in Northern Health where people can access chronic pain care next to your clinic. So I think it's fantastic. Just out of curiosity, do you think that if someone came out of a GP plus one anesthetist program today, and they were focused on doing a pain clinic similar to yours, could that be a full-time gig for someone? Is there enough need? Or does it always have to be matched with the acute care hospital component? God knows. But I, I would argue there's not enough need. There's more need for counselors and psychologists and you would run pretty thin, pretty quick. But on the other hand, run properly and run with a physiotherapist, I, I absolutely think it could be done. I think professionally, in a rural area, it's far more rewarding to have a mixed practice. So doing this as well as more acute anesthesia, and you learn from both places. And I tell people who I give the needles to, giving, giving anesthetics tells me where not to put the needle. So yes, I might cause a pneumothorax. <laughs> But I also am pretty good at re-expanding lungs. People amazingly laugh at that too, but it's true. But you can go away and do those things. You can do locums and do those things as well and come back to your pain practice. So we could definitely expand our practice. We could make this much bigger for sure. Yeah. No, I just I just wondered out of curiosity because obviously a lot of people who'll be listening to this are up and coming in the profession. And I think pain and the treatment of chronic pain is a huge hot topic issue, as you alluded to earlier with the opioid crisis going on. Can you tell me a little bit about who are the patients in rural remote areas? And I know your area is unique. They're the same as everywhere else. <laughs> They're you and me. I've worked with you know, nurses and doctors and, and people working in the lumber yards. There's a lot of people whose upbringing has been less privileged in this part of the world. So what makes it unique? Less privileged upbringing, the generational trauma that's talked about in First Nations. But I'd argue anybody that goes west, a lot of people that go rurally, they're here because things weren't stable where they were. There's intergenerational trauma in all races, <laughs> in all sexes. But I'd suggest perhaps there's a little bit more in this part of the world. I just am very interested in your patient base because it is such a unique practice you have. And I think many people in the future will want to replicate it, whether you feel that way or not. I feel like people are going to hear this and be like, wow, that's an opportunity for an amazing career and profession. 
that you've opened the gate to. Switching gears a little bit, uh, you and I initially met actually through a research project. And I just wanted to talk about briefly, you know, I think a lot of people don't tie together rural remote practice and research. Often people think academia, urban settings, that type of relationship. But you continue to engage with uh, research and you have for many years. Just wondering, like, what motivates you to keep in touch with research? You know, you're not seeking tenor track. How do I say this without sounding cheesy? Uh, it's uh, the pursuit of truth is just fun. It feels like a loaded word. It feels spiritual almost. It's like, oh, to find, when you find something that's true, it's just really rewarding. Working in Nunavut, like I was taught in Vancouver or other places, oh, 90 something percent of strep throat is, is negative. It's not strep throat. Whereas in Nunavut, 95% of the swabs are positive. It's like, oh my God, like this needs to be studied. Or when in, like you just see these truths in your practice and you, it just screams for publication. But the, the ketamine assisted therapy, like the cycle, like I didn't ask anybody. I just started doing it and then include, brought in the psychiatrist and, and we're having some amazing results, but we've got no funding and our funding, the little bit of funding we did have for the nurse is probably going to be pulled by the end of the month. But I'm doing a QIM project on it, so I've got some data. Yeah, why wouldn't you study these things? This is how science works, right? This is the best part of science. We need to prove things. I can make all sorts of claims about dreams or this and that, and you would you should appropriately say, well, where's the science? It's part of my epiphanies through dreams, too, has motivated me. I've found so much truth. And, well, how do you explain this to somebody? And I, I somebody absolutely should say, where's the science, Jacob Eck? Prove it because the world's filled with people just claiming stuff. So we need we need to do studies. We need to do research. Well, I think that brings me to the end of this interview. I, I don't have any other questions for you, and I appreciate your time so much. I know it's so precious right now for you because you've been working so much. Thank you. I know people are going to immensely benefit from this interview. You're the very first GP anesthetist to come on the Metamorphosis podcast. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks so much. It's been fun. You too. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you'd like to hear more from the Metamorphosis Podcast, please be sure to check us out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever else podcasts are available. Take it easy, and we hope to see you next time. This has been a presentation of the UBC Medicine Learning Network. 